Howdy folks, today we're going to be talking about gum bichromate. And if you're wondering what that is, well, you're not alone. Luckily, we've got experts in analog photography on the show today, so all shall be revealed right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nuts, and if you enjoy this content, consider lending your support to buymeacoffee.com forward slash cameraShake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. Your support really does make a difference. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, analog photographer, the founder of the Bushwick Community Darkroom in New York City, Shim, I hope I pronounced this right, Shim Photo at the United Lab Network. Give it up for Lucia Rolo. Lucia, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Oops, and I pressed the wrong button. So now you're on screen. Oops. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm okay. Fantastic. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, we've, we've, well, we've talked about analog photography or film photography on the show in the past. In particular, I remember um, a few months ago we had... I'm um, a guest on the show called Gilbert Mayak, who is a street photographer in London in the UK. And uh, he cool. shoots a lot on film, which was super interesting. And for me being, well, having grown up in the sort of digital age, as it were, um, for me, film photography has always been, um, it's been sort of a mystery because actually, you know, as a kid, I grew up around film photography. My my dad and my grandmother were both photographers. And I remember, you know, my dad turning our, bathroom into a dark room and you know and I, nobody was allowed in and all that kind of jazz <laughs> <laughs> of course but, yeah, of course um but give us sort of an, a helicopter view um about who you are and what your particular affiliation with analog photography is my name's Lucia right um I I got I came I I, I grew up in Boston Massachusetts um, and my parents were both sort of, you know, artistically inclined, but not so much in a way that it was like their day jobs, right? My dad wrote computer manuals and my mom has a bunch of real estate, so she manages the real estate and whatnot. Um, but it was always like we we grew up in, in this like liberal arts New England household. So there was a lot of art and art history surrounding us. And um, when I was like, I don't even know, probably like four or five one of my um, parents' friends gave me one of those 110 cameras that are those little skinny ones. I remember that that um, type of camera because I grew up, uh, I remember a camera that um, my dad had, I think. It was called, I'm not really sure what it was called. It was an Akfa, I seem to remember. And it looked exactly the that same. That sounds it right, a, yeah. It had like a big red button. Um, and then yeah. in order to, uh, to, to forward the film, you'd basically ratchet it together, you know, it would be like, Maybe just super cool sound. And I remember just as a kid just sitting there yep. just listening to that sound. It's like the most perfect kind of Star Wars like, you know, Foley sound. Right? It's <laughs> like super satisfying. So yeah. I was basically hooked after I got that. And then I went to a summer camp when I was like about twelve or thirteen, I think, and got into a dark room there. And then from there that just kind of like set me on the road of like oh, like, this is, like, my sort of, like, safe space where I can just, you know, be here, like, being productive, but also, like, doing stuff. And 
like being productive, but also having fun. Um, and my, my dad was, you know, sort of a painter. And so he was always trying to get us to draw and stuff. And I was never about that. I can't, I can't translate from my eyes to my hand, but with the camera, it felt like I could. So, um, yeah, I, I like spent a lot of time in the dark room in high school. And then I came to New York to study at the school of visual arts. I studied photography there. Um, and then I graduated and a few years later, I started the dark room because I needed a dark room basically. Um, and I had had, you know, these shared community dark rooms from school for the last like decade prior to that. And so I was like, I missed this like camaraderie of, of, of having people around me and like being able to talk to them and being able to bounce ideas off of them, but not necessarily feeling like obligated, you know, like we could all kind of do our own thing, but also, you know, if people were, people were there. So if you wanted them, you could like reach them, but it was, so it's, it's a good like environment. I feel like for introverts who still want like a little bit of socializing or something. <laughs> yeah. And I picked up gum printing while I was in high school. So. Yeah. I mean, gum printing, I, I'll be honest with you. I'd never even heard of that. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting thing. Um, but before we get into that in more detail, cause I would definitely have to, I'll pick that up. This can be super interesting. Taking photographs or, or making photographs uh, is sort of a two-part process. There's the taking of the picture, and then there's the kind of bringing it to life in a digital form, you know, in post-processing, or of course in an analog form in the darkroom. Have you ever have you been sort of drawn to the process in the darkroom more than the the taking of the picture, or how was that for you? I'm almost. I'm sort of inclined to say, like, yes, overall. Um, if you had to like boil it down like that simply, but I don't know. I mean, I think of like film and digital as like just they're very different and they serve very different purposes for me. Um, like I do shoot digitally sometimes, you know, like I've been known to do, you know, headshots and portraits and events and stuff, um, just like, you know, pay the bills and whatnot. Um, cause I do know how to like, you know, take a picture. Um, but that's, it's, it's more something for me where I'm like, that's just like, I kind of turn off my brain and am doing a job. Right. But when I'm shooting film, I'm, I'm definitely like more like sort of thoughtful about the actual picture that I'm taking. Um, and so, and I use completely different cameras, you know? So like the experience of actually taking the picture is still definitely part of the process. Um, I have a Hasselblad, so I love that thing, right? Like, I mean, that, that's a very different experience to shoot a Hasselblad than it is to shoot like most other cameras. And so like, like that part of the taking, like, I definitely enjoy it. It's definitely like a major part of the process for me, but it's so quick, you know, that, yeah, I'm, I'm not here to just like scan my negatives and print them out on, on inkjet paper or whatever. For me, the whole process is, is the thing that like has the uh, sort of enjoyment, satisfaction, reward. There's a definite, yeah. um, a real satisfaction in like shooting with like mechanical cameras. That's why I find, um, I, you know, this the, the thing about shooting digital for me is always that it's it's basically it, it's almost like just a computational thing there isn't really very much of a satisfaction you click a button it 
hardly makes any noise at all. There's no, you can't feel anything. There's no okay. haptic kind of response or anything like that. You know, there's there's nothing. You don't put a yeah. film in. It's it's just you know, it's almost like I mean, you whip out your phone. Almost, you know, you whip out your phone, you take a picture, right. and you're gone. You know, that's that's basically that. Let's and then also you have the instant gratification of being able to look at the shot immediately on the back of the camera, and you know, and 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 make adjustments from there. And that has advantages, of course, it does. But Absolutely. the thing that you know, the thing that always fascinated me when I was a kid, and I was I watched my dad in the in the dark room was that there was sort of a, there was an element of secret and secrecy and mystery about it because you didn't know what the image was going to be. And then you stand there, you look at the, the tray, you know, and it would just all of a sudden appear, you know. Right. <laughs> and that'd be the first time. There's nothing like that. There's yeah, absolutely nothing like that. It's uh it's it's a really it's a really satisfying experience. And um I think, you know, if to be honest with you, I mean you know, I Although I grew up personally, I grew up around film photographers. Um, I, at the time, back in the eighties or something, you know, mid eighties, I sort of, I kind of felt everybody's shooting stills around me. I'm going to go into video because I want to make movies. You know. <laughs> oh <laughs> so yeah. I, you know, and I went. Uh, I was. Uh, that would be very I, expensive to shoot on film. Yeah. I, that being said, you know, my granddad used to uh, shoot Super Eight films, eight millimeter films. That's uh, no sound. Just, oh, nice. just picture. Um, that was real. So, um, so that was uh, that was one of the things. One of the things in my family, every other Sunday or something, we'd have to sit in a darkened room with a projector and watch his latest creation, which was basically just family stuff, you know. Oh my like, god! Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it, there was something to it, you know. There was something about the screen going on, <laughs> um, the projector coming out, and then you know the the sound of the projector. Um, the light beam. Right. Like people the, used to do slideshows of just like still slides from their vacations. Yeah, exactly. I remember being like very little and my parents used to do that. Like we went to Europe a few times when I was like a baby. And when we came home, they would set up the slide projector in the in the living room and invite a bunch of friends over and sit there and yeah. like the whirring and flicking and like. Yeah, exactly. And of course, in those days, I mean, you know, you wouldn't really find it nowadays. But in those days, people used to smoke a lot. <laughs> I remember sitting there, you know, as a kid. Right. And, you know, and they'd oh be like. God. You know, a smoke-filled room, like the the light beam of the projector, and then you know everything happening on the screen, and everything was like I don't know, eight frames per second or something. Everything was a bit, <laughs> you know, all the movements were a bit not very smooth, but um, <laughs> but it had something to it, and I think you know, for me, it was definitely something that hooked me into the world of you know of image creation and stuff like that. Um, for me personally, when I eventually went into photography proper. Um, the world had already switched to digital. It's really kind of at the at the point when everything was switching, and so at, at that time, I kind of thought, "Oh, this sounds good. Well, I don't have to, I don't have to like sit in a room with chemicals." <laughs> awesome, great. Then in front of a computer. <laughs> I I know, I know, I know, I know. And it's you know, and this is it's the thing. I like sometimes, not sometimes, but actually quite often, you know, I'm thinking, not it would be cool actually to you know, to uh, to work in a to work in a dark room. Um, now you've obviously you went you know you studied photography um and and then then film photography analog photography just just stuck with you um what what was the thing that that sort of that that's that kept, you know that was the word that kept on fascinating you about analog photography when the world around you just moved on to to digital 
interesting because like as much as like the world moved on to digital like sort of from my perspective that was actually like a fleeting drop in the pan and um so there was never really any need for me to move on from digital if that makes any sense like i i graduated from college in 2009 and kodak first or second or whatever declared bankruptcy in like 2011 or 2012 i think and so and then um my sva my college got rid of their color darkroom around the same time and i think now they've gotten rid of about half of their black and white darkrooms as well so it felt like i was sort of part of this like last generation that was like being taught this stuff as like you need to know how to take a studio portrait on four by five or you won't be able to have a career right and and i feel like the kids that started school maybe like my senior year right after i graduated i don't think they like got that kind of education i think they were focused a lot more on digital but um i mean for me it was it was it was it wasn't that it had it was the only thing i ever knew it was just that like I knew immediately that I didn't want to spend my life sitting in front of a computer and like editing photos. And I always hated just doing all of that Photoshop stuff. And I was like, this is not why I got into photography. I got into photography because I like the tactile and the mystery and the science and the magic and like all of that stuff. And I felt like the computers just totally like sucked the soul out of it, shall we say, right? Um, and then, I mean, and then after Kodak went bankrupt, it sort of seemed like things started turning around. And now you look at it and like Gen Z is all about filling. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, but also like in addition to that, you know, I have a lot of friends that are like professional editorial photographers, fashion photographers, just generally commercial photographers. And when I was in school in, you know, the early 2000s, all of that stuff was being shot on film. And I was doing a lot of, I, I had several jobs at magazines as like an assistant photo editor. Um, and so I could see all of that stuff back then being shot on film too. You know, we were handling all these me medium format, like large format negatives that were, it was just the only way to get the quality that was high enough for print, you know, um, especially in the early 2000s, digital cameras still just weren't they're not they weren't right where they are now for sure obviously it's been 20 years but um so yeah and and now i look at like the next generation of people who are now my peers who are doing those same kinds of shoots and a lot of them are shooting film uh like a lot um it's it's really shocking the number of people to me that are actually like shooting developing and then a lot of for especially for fashion people will make prints in the color darkroom and then scan those prints and use that as their sort of like color reference for doing the digital stuff um and so i think it's really interesting how they've sort of like learned to like play together um and yeah i mean like am i answering your question for me digital is good for the like kind of quick stuff but i feel like for the things that, that we need to last those are those like might always be shot on film you know because i mean when you boil it down at the end of the day the film is the only archival like option that we have for images you know your your hard drives your cds your your magnetic videotape or whatever that's all gonna just degrade and disappear over the course of maybe a decade 
But if your film is stored properly, it'll last forever, right? I mean, we've still got some of the like first negatives. So um, that's a big part of it for me too. It's just like, if I care about this, if I'm going to put the energy into making this, then why am I going to do it in such a way that like the file's just going to disappear and be deleted and it's going to be like it never existed? Or I'm going to have like an inkjet print that like may or may not be archival and like, so yeah, I don't know. A huge portion of it for me is the archivability. Often it's, you know, people think, well, you know, it's a digital file, so I could just, you know, save it in the cloud or, you know, save it in a hard drive or whatever, and it'll be there forever. Right. The re- make copies of it. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, that's not really how it works. I, you know, I remember um, not too long ago, actually, you know, again, it's something I've spoke, spoken about on this podcast several times, um, but I remember um, not too long ago, my mom found, so my mom lives in the south of Germany, she found um, a shoebox in the basement of... Uh, eight millimeter videotapes, like video eight tapes um, that oh, I had wow. shot back in the sort of late eighties, early nineties. You know, when I was like, basically, I had a, a, a one of the first of digital video cameras that you could get at the time, and I, you know, I basically oh. I lived with that thing. I mean, I basically shot everything. You know, the most That's boring awesome. stuff. I mean, the, the, you, I mean, it's so stuff so boring you wouldn't even. I mean, you know, my, my parents playing tennis. <laughs> But you know, like, I, then you look back on it and it's like, you know, nostalgic and like that. It is just, I don't know. I feel like yeah, it doesn't no, matter what it is. Like, 100% is absolutely nostalgic, especially now, you know, that my dad isn't around anymore. And it's like, well, okay, I can't believe how young they were back then. But when she sent those tapes back to me um, and I, you know, first of all, I had to figure out a way um, of, of digitizing that because it's, you know, it was magnetic yeah. tape, you know. And and I didn't I didn't have a, a a camcorder that could handle that format. And that by sheer chance, a client of mine called me up and she's like, "Oh well, I'm moving house, and uh, you know I've got this like my dad's camcorder in the basement, and I was going to throw it out, but then I thought maybe you might want it. Yeah, do you want to have a look at it? And I'm like, oh, sure, absolutely, one hundred percent. So I went and I got it, and it was basically pretty much brand new. It was a Sony Handycam, um, really? video eight, eight millimeter magnetic tape phone you know and so i'm like oh okay cool i wonder if i wonder if these tapes work and so i managed to basically transfer those from you know from the camcorder onto my computer but i'd say cool. about 65 percent of it had uh, degraded to the point where you either had only audio left or like you know the the image was completely falling apart so i think probably about 65 percent of it was unusable um, the rest of it was pretty, pretty okay, you know, but it just goes to show this is like, you know, these tapes are how old? Tw- 30 years old, I guess. Hey. You know, and that's like, that's really no time. Yeah. And they already, right, exactly. And I mean, if people are shooting editorial stuff and like, you know, stuff that's like important news stuff, you know, I mean, we we have like those pictures from D-Day that like Robert Kappa shot. Like if he had shot that digitally, like would we have any of those pictures? You know, like I mean, it's not that it's like good, but we need that stuff documented, and like future generations need to be able to see that stuff. And so, I mean, there's definitely a part of me that's like concerned about you know the quantity of history that we're gonna lose over the next oh totally ever, but. And it's so easy to lose as well. Um, my my mom moved house um, last year, and 
there were boxes and boxes and boxes of photographs of prints. Um, I mean, I don't know, thousands, thousands of, of prints going all the way back to, I don't know, the, or I guess the early 20th century, I think something like that. Wow. You know, uh, family photos and God knows what, I mean, people have, I didn't recognize, you know, yeah. but the interesting thing was these prints were still there, they were in the box and, and most of them were actually still mm-hmm. really good, especially the back of my ones. Some of the color ones, you know, obviously uh, not so much, but you know, uh, but it was still there. Now, I remember shooting or photographing my daughter ever since she was born. She's 12 now. And I have absolutely zero idea where those initial images were. They were shot on like an iPhone 4, which, but I have no idea right. where those images are. I mean, they're somewhere probably on some hard drive or in the cloud or something, but you know, no idea. There's absolutely they're not no in way a shoebox under your bed. They're not in a shoebox, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, so actually, for all intents and purposes, they're actually lost. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, I mean, like when Facebook came out first, right, everybody was like really excited about it. We were all creating these photo albums and putting them on Facebook and all that stuff. And it's like, how much of that stuff, like, only went on Facebook, right? Like, it's probably still buried somewhere in your Facebook album or whatever if you still have that. But, like, you know, those, I mean, a lot of that stuff is just like quick iPhone photos, right? And so we have all of these like archives and like, and we don't even like own that shit. I don't even yeah. know how those laws work. Like, and, and what if Facebook goes out of business tomorrow? And so gone. Right, and then exactly. What? They could just yeah. shut down their servers and then we just don't have access to any of our personal like history because we didn't think that we needed to back them up and print them out and whatever. Whereas if you shoot a negative, you just have a negative and then you can print it endlessly for the rest of time. Exactly. And you don't have to worry about the quality decreasing. And like, that's the other thing too with like digital files is like they kind of degrade over time too. So even if you still have your hard drives or whatever, like eventually those files are going to, I don't know, disintegrate. I don't know what the word would be, but like, People explained it to me who know about these things, but I don't know <laughs> yeah. enough about these things to explain it myself. Sorry. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypod products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. If you could take us through, the first of all, the basic process of developing film, uh, just for those of our listeners who may have grown up in a completely, entirely digital world, um, but I know there's lots of people out there who are interested and curious about analog photography. What's the actual basic process of from taking 
the image to holding the finished print in your in your hands um, in, in sort of a standard development kind of way? That's such a good question. It's amazing, like doing the film developing at the darkroom and stuff. The number of people that like just don't un- like have any idea, and I'm always like, wait, oh, what? Like, <laughs> so it's like really a three step process, um, and de- it's it's developing and it's printing, and those are two different things, and they're two different steps. And when people come to me and ask to get their film developed. Sometimes they get angry because I don't give them prints because they haven't asked for prints. They only asked for developing. <laughs> um, so developing is taking the film. It's the process of taking the film from being something that can only be contained in that metal canister that you put in your camera and turning it into something that can be looked at in white daylight and and you can actually like see an image. Like if you pulled the film out of the canister you know after you exposed it but before you developed it you wouldn't be able to see anything um it would just be you know gray or brown depending on if it's color film and this is actually sometimes something people sometimes ask me they'll say um you know i found this old roll is there any way that i can look at it and see if it's been shot or not before i develop it and i'm like no like there just isn't like it looks exactly the same before and after exposure until you develop it. Um, And so then you develop it, and that is a process of loading the film either into a tank or a machine and running it through three chemicals. Um, Developer, which brings up the image. Stop, which stops the image from continuing to develop. And fixer, which makes it safe to bring out into the white light for all practical purposes. and those are the same chemicals that are used in printing, but like slightly different versions and dilutions. Um, so yeah, if you're doing it at home, you just load the film into a tank and like pour the chemicals into the tank and shake it around for, you know, usually around 10 minutes and dump it out, and whatever, and then you hang it up to dry. And then once you have the negative, that's what the developed film is called, it's the negative, right? Um, you take the negative and you put it in an enlarger. And an enlarger is really just a projector that is pointed down instead of at a wall but there are some enlargers that point at the wall actually if you want to make big prints you can project onto the wall um uh so yeah you put the negative in the enlarger you project it down or out onto a surface and then you have a piece of light sensitive paper and you put that under the projection and that um i don't know the the clear parts of the negative cause the white parts of the paper to turn black and the black parts of the negative cause the white parts of the paper to stay light and so where you have had a negative image on a piece of film you end up with a positive image on a piece of paper um and you can't see that positive image on the piece of paper until you start running it through the chemicals um and so in a black and white dark room that's usually just done in trays with developer stop fixer um and with color it's usually done in a machine with um a developer in a bleach it's a little different it's not really complicated it's just kind of more gross um so yeah in order to in order to get the print in order to get the paper you have to yeah the printing and the developing are different things basically is my my point there so you specialize in a process called uh gum bichromate 
uh, which which is a completely different process. Um, take us through how that works. Um, I mean, it's Maybe. not actually completely different. Um, it's it's pretty, yeah. Where do I start with that? There are a bunch of different ways that people do it, but um, the way that I do it, I start with black and white negatives. Um, and then there's this, you can buy um, Lithum is what it's called. Lithography comb, I think, is what it's like designed for. And it's, it's, it's a high contrast plastic that has an emulsion painted on one side and um, it comes in sheets. So it's, instead of being a little roll, it's like an inch wide, like most 35 millimeter rolls are. The lift film is, you know, I usually use sheets that are about nine by 12, but you can get it as big as like 20 by 24 and maybe in rolls too. I'm not sure exactly how big it gets, but that doesn't matter. Um, so, so when I do my gum prints, I do the first half of the process there that I just explained with the developing. Um, and I, so I take the picture in a regular camera and then instead of when I start printing, instead of printing down onto paper, I first print onto this plastic stuff, um, the big sheets of lith film. And from that, I create a, basically a large negative, like a contact negative that I can put on directly on a piece of paper, and that will make my image um, instead of putting a negative in an enlarger and projecting it down onto a piece of paper. Because um, when you're doing gum bichromate you're using dichromate as the light sensitive um, material and it's only sensitive to ultraviolet light sunlight um so <clears throat> you can't make an exposure of a gum print using an enlarger you have to do it either outside in the sun or with special uv lights so you need the negative to go directly on the paper once you have your big yeah. negative you mix up your your photographic emulsion for the actual print and that's just a mix mixture of uh, potassium dichromate, gum arabic, and any color watercolor pigment. And it's just it's you just take those three ingredients in you know various ratios depending on the amount of contrast you want, um, and you coat it on the paper and you make your print by putting the piece of plastic on top of it and putting it out in the sun. And then it develops in water, um, and the 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 clear parts of the negative have caused the dichromate to harden and glue the pigment to the paper and the black parts of the negatives have left the dichromate soft so those kind of just like dissolve um and you end up with a positive image because you used a negative uh and it ends up being sort of a very like painterly watercolor-esque uh representation of a photograph yeah, I was going to say the uh, the end results really differ very dramatically from like you know a, a standard print. They really have this sort of um, yeah this kind of painterly quality to them, which which makes them immediately super interesting. And I always thought for some reason um, I always thought this was a fairly you know read in but it comes a relatively modern process, but it's not. It's 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 actually something that that was developed. Relatively I think dichromate early on. has been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean I know that people have been using dichromates of various sorts. There's, there's ammonium dichromate and potassium dichromate and there are probably others, but I know that people have been using those as like sensitizing materials for, I don't know, at least a hundred years, probably more like 200 years. Like, yeah. Um, it's definitely one of the older processes. It's not like the oldest, right? It's not like, like salt printing or whatever, but, um, 
and I'm not sure exactly when it was invented or discovered, but I would estimate sometime in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. I mean, it's, it's, um, I find it very, very satisfying to see that, you know, those, those processes are still used and, you know, are still, um, relevant, you know, even, even today, even with like, you know, I don't know, you know, a hundred megapixel digital files. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think this is part of like the sort of like, like, like backlash to digital almost like, like given the simplicity and the speed that we can accomplish with digital, it sort of makes some people want to, you know, step back and and slow down a bit more because I mean, making a gun print is going to take like basically like at least a week because you have to do like multiple layers of color and you have to let paper completely dry overnight between the multiple layers and, you know, making the negatives and taking the picture. And like, if you, if you, if you did everything, you know, immediately one after the other, you could probably make a print in about a week. It usually takes me about a month. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's really, that's incredible. I take days off in between. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. It's, um, it's nice though, right? It forces you to like yeah. slow down. I remember not to, I mean, uh, a little while ago, um, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was sort of a onlooker at a photography, um, at a photo competition. And one of the, one of the images was really interesting. It's basically, it was a, you know, it's a bunch of people. You could make them out as people. It's basically a street scene. It was, it looked like it was shot through a window um, that had water running down on it. And so you could make out oh, cool. that there were people, you know, and it's a really, really cool image. Um, and you know, my first, obviously, you know, my, my first instinct was like, oh, uh, yeah, Photoshop. And then, but it turned out that actually that was shot completely analog, um, through cool. multiple stages with, you know, um, yeah, there was <laughs> multiple different stages and rephotographing and redeveloping and blah, blah, the whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing took a week. You know, to put this thing together, and immediately you have a completely different form of respect for that image because, you know, what previously I thought was like, oh yeah, Photoshop filter, no problem. <laughs> you know, they don't all of a sudden turn into, whoa, this is hard work, man, unbelievable. You right. know, um, and what fascinates me with that is is the, you know, the foresight required in actually creating that because you really, you know, you're creating something uh, really at the creation stage rather than later on in post-processing. So you know a lot of the, uh, yeah. the a lot of the work that I do, which is uh, a lot of the times composites. Um, you know, I I shoot for the composites, so I know what I need for the post processing part of it, um, mm-hmm. and so I have the final image in mind, and then it's that is just a technical putting it together on a computer type of a thing, you know. Um, but it's in no way as uh, I mean, it doesn't take a week. Let's put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes like nine hours of staring at a computer screen <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and it's you know and it's of course it's a, it's a completely different process um but uh, yeah i mean personally you know I've, I've always been fascinated by by the actual the analogness and and it's like you said it's sort of it's almost like a, a reaction like a pushing back against that sort of ever encroaching digital world because everything's going digital and everything's you know um everything nowadays for some reason requires this sort of instant gratification you know like being able to see the the photo on the back of your camera for example you know um and i, I mean i've often i've been asked like you know what's your ultimate nightmare in photography and I always say shooting a wedding on film for me like <laughs> you know it's because i'd be yeah. I'd be 
dead scared, you know. Like, oh man, if, if anybody yeah. ever asks me, like, you know, I wouldn't you, do you... that. Like, yeah, it is, it's shocking. And yet, you know, people used to do it every day. Like, you know, so, I mean, if I guess the show, still used... do it. And they charge a premium yeah. for it. It's like a high-end luxury thing now to get your wedding shot on film, which, I mean, it should be given the cost of film and developing and all that stuff. But it's like, yeah, yeah. I I would not be able to stand that pressure, honestly. Oh, it's like, uh, humongous I mean, pressure. Can you imagine? Like, did you get the first kiss? Not uh, your well, I hope so. But I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, well, but they're also, I mean, they're really the creative uh, avenues in that. Um, I've I fairly recently um, got into um, Instax photography, so not, it doesn't really have anything to do with film development. I mean, <laughs> maybe in, in a little way. Um, but the thing about that, no, you know, the thing about that is, is what I like about it is the fact that you press the shutter button and then that is it. There's no, you know, there's no post processing or anything. It's basically that is that is the moment that you captured right there, you know, and there's no no fiddling about with it afterwards. You know, it's and that's it's very very satisfying totally. to have something physical in your hand and i think just like a lot of digital photographers in the in the beginning when i went into photography i never really saw the point of you know of, of having a physical photograph in your hand a printing I've, yeah. yeah of printing yeah but learn i mean i've learned that through experience is that it's incredibly satisfying to have a hard copy version of the you know, I mean the, the fact that that thing that you create right. doesn't just exist on a screen behind glass or somewhere as a digital file of zeros and ones, but it's, it's actually a physical thing. That's incredibly satisfying. Right, and having like like being able to you know understand sort of the like magic and science that like went into making that image like show up on the paper and. And like being in the dark room and having a hand and feeling some sort of sense of semi-control over like the results of that image. I think that is like like really empowering. It's amazing to see like, you know, I don't know, kids respond to this stuff. There's um there's a traveling dark room that's based in I think they're based in Turkey and they're called the Circane Dark Room. Um and I've been sort of vaguely in touch with them for I don't know, like probably at least five years now. And they give um, just like little cameras to like Syrian refugee children, and then they teach them how to develop and print in this like RV thing that they drive around. And I'm just like, oh, awesome. it's it's amazing to see these pictures that these kids take because they're just you know running around in these fields and playing and being like normal happy children. And like then they're going and learning how to do this. And I just feel like like it makes me really happy that something like that can be available in you know a place like that where you know shit kind of sucks most of the time i imagine for these kids because they're refugee children uh absolutely which also which brings me to um the bushwick community dark room that you set up um some years ago i want to talk about that because when i read about that i kind of thought man that would be so cool if anything like that existed where I am. I'm on the outskirts of London and I, I mean, there may be a dark room, a community dark room in London. I don't actually know. It's such a good idea. Um, there must be, I'm sure, I'm sure there would be, uh, which I will definitely, I will, I will seek out after this. Um, but tell us a little bit about 
the Bushwick Community Darkroom. How did you come up with that idea and, and how did you make that happen? Um, I mean, I was living in Bushwick and uh, it was like a few years after I graduated from school. We were still sort of in the recovery from the economic collapse or whatever of 2008. Um, and so, you know, it sort of just felt like a weird time and I couldn't really find a job that I wanted. I thought I was going to go be a photo editor after I graduated, but then all the magazines closed. So I was sort of like in this limbo of like, what am I doing? What do I want to do? And um, yeah, I mean, I tried to use a few other like public dark rooms in New York City and either they were just like way beyond my price range or they weren't like reliable or whatever. Um, there, I, I wanted a place that like I could just get to easily and whenever I wanted, basically I'm spoiled. Um, but then I found out that uh, they had these basically like six foot by eight foot maybe eight by ten foot storage units in the basement of the building that i was living in um and the there one that was actually available at that moment was the one that was right next to the laundry room so i was like hey like i all i really needed at that moment in time was a black and white dark room and i wanted to be able to print up to 16 by 20 so i was like okay can I do this in this space? What do I need to do to make this happen? And, you know, I sort of figured out that, like, it wouldn't actually be very hard because nobody, like, there's so much darkroom equipment just out there. It's so easy to just get, like, for, like, virtually no money, right? So, um, and then I started talking to a few of my friends and I was involved in a couple different, like, arts organizations in the neighborhood at the time. So I started talking to people there and being like, if I set this up as like a community darkroom, is it something that you would be interested in? Whatever, whatever, whatever. I got so, you know some pretty good feedback, so I launched a Kickstarter, um, and we reached the Kickstarter goal. I didn't really think we were gonna reach the Kickstarter goal, so when we did, I was kind of like, oh fuck, now I actually have to do this. Um, but yeah, then I did it, and I set it up in this closet, and. We were down there for, I don't know, a year and a half or two years. And it got to the point where it was just like fully at capacity all the time. Um, and I was like, well, shit, I need to like, you know, find some more space. Because I was also like, as the word gets out, more people start offering you equipment. And so I ended up with like 10 enlargers for my little closet. And I was like, this isn't working. I need more space. Um, yeah. And so from there, we just kind of moved into bigger and bigger spaces and then um in 2015 we moved into a 4,000 square foot warehouse that was a few blocks from the original closet uh and then we just moved out of that space at the end of last year because it was falling down and flooding and uh didn't have heat or air conditioning and i just got to a point where i was like i can't i can't spend another winter here um and I thought I had another space lined up that we were going to move into last March. And then, like, a week before we were supposed to move in there, that landlord, like, just totally flipped the script on me. And he was like, I'm not comfortable with this. And I was like, okay, I've been giving you all the information you've been asking for as you've been asking for it. Like, I told you this was going to be a dark room. I don't know, like, what part of this you're not comfortable with. But, you know, I his reaction was just so, like extra that i just was like i'm not going to engage with this guy um and so since then i've sort of been like in limbo looking for a new place to 
put the dark room and everything's in storage right now um but i have a couple of leads i'm i'm like working on you know figuring out the details of and it's just been like a super hectic summer my mom got diagnosed with cancer and all this various stuff so i'm like okay it's all just taking a little bit longer to get reopened than i thought i would but um it'll happen and uh yeah i mean when we were in that warehouse it was great for a while well it was great and then it kind of stopped being great um but i think maybe that was I, I think maybe I thought it was less great than like most other people thought. Like I, because I was there all the time, right? So I saw every little nitty gritty thing. And other people just walk in and they're like, "Oh my god, this is so cool!" And I'm like, "You don't understand that every time it rains, four feet of water come up through the floor. <laughs> like I can't live like this." Um, so yeah, it was fun. And we did shows and we teach classes. We taught classes. We're 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 working now through the United Film Lab Network, which I sort of set up as like um sort of a stopgap but also as something that i've been thinking about doing for a long time um so now we have relationships with a whole bunch of different dark rooms both in new york city and around the country and several in europe um i think dark room london is what they're called and i think they might actually be in our network um but yeah, so now we're we're partnered with all these people, and with the ones in New York City, we're starting to run classes again out of those spaces instead of out of my space. Um, and we're still doing like the drop off film developing service because I have little drop boxes set up where people can just leave their film and then I check them and bring them to this lab that I'm working with. So it's like evolution and figuring out how to fit all the pieces together. But um, yeah, yeah, it came out of like my personal selfish need for a dark room <laughs> but also like the sort of desire for the community space and the accidental bumping into other people who were doing similar stuff and like you know all the sense of like where do i go to find my people right like that was what school has uh, had always been for me like i can go to this facility and there will be people there that i know i can talk to and trade ideas with or also just not i'll plug in my headphones and get to work and you know it's fine um and so that was kind of the the vibe that i was trying to recreate and uh i think i did for a certain degree for a certain period and i think we'll get back there um yeah one of the spaces i have a lead on is with one of my friends and it would be really 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 perfect so i'll know sometime in the next like month or month and a half like if when that's actually gonna work out and i'm just kind of hoping what sort of space are you looking for generally empty space that can be built out <laughs> like i don't know i mean uh when i left basically i'm looking for no i do know what i'm looking for i'm looking for roughly 1500 square feet that are like empty commercial space um i want a roof that doesn't leak i want a floor that doesn't leak i want heat i want air conditioning and i want like at least one decently sized window and i want to be like relatively close to a train station in the bushwick ridgewood area of brooklyn i know we have quite a few uh, listeners in the new york city area so you know if you are listening and you know you have any leads on any anything that fits the description basically you know a place that doesn't leak that has a roof that's not full of holes and uh, you know right and, and and a place that doesn't flood 
and can be converted <laughs> and built out into a dark room, then you know, please get in touch. I'll uh, get in touch with B directly. It's warmer and than forty pounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any heating, just just any form of heating would be great. Um, yeah, if you're if you're in the New York City area, um, David, and uh, <laughs> you're listening to this to this podcast, uh, you know, uh, and you have any any leads on anything like that, or have any ideas, then or can help out in any way um, for a, a community project yeah. that's absolutely worthwhile, then please either get in touch with me, uh, either you know through our Facebook group, or you can email me directly. Um, or send me a message on Instagram or whatever. Send a pigeon. Just tie a message to a pigeon <laughs> and off you go. Any which way. That would be fantastic. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about, about the educational aspects of that because you, you mentioned that you are teaching workshops, for example. Um, what Do you find that there's um, an ever-increasing uh, interest in analog photography? I would say, yeah. I, I would say, yeah. <laughs> I mean... All of our classes are basically always full anytime I like tell people about them. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a little strange because, like, obviously moving out of the building meant that my, like, numbers declined in terms of, like, traffic and revenue and whatever because we didn't have the space anymore. Um, but it's, you know, it, it declined and then it sort of, like, stayed steady and I can, I can definitely, like see it like picking back up and and when i talk to you know everybody that i know in the industry it's like yeah like there's not it's not going anywhere you know um and so like there's there's been moments this summer where i've sort of been like well should i even bother like trying to find a new spot and i mean the reality is like yeah like i personally like i have to bother finding a new spot like i have all this equipment and storage but also like I need the space and I think the world does need the space. And I think that there is and will be a demand for it. Like, I mean, we get like fucking little children, you know, we get emails from parents being like, can my eight year old come? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess if it's okay with you. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, like it's not as long as they don't start drinking chemicals, it's not going to hurt them and more will hurt you or me. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just the main thing, oh. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, but yeah, I mean, I can I can see how that um, I can I can see how that's really attractive. You know, like, again, in a world where everything else around us is is so digital, you know, to go back and to do something, um, you know, really analog is is immediately attractive. I think to to a lot of people, um, and just that moment of seeing the picture come up in the developer tray, like they're really anxious. I don't think there's anything in the IP that in the world you know like they'll just just watching that white paper turn into something and knowing that you did that like you know and you're you don't have to be like a major like science and math or whatever to like understand and accomplish and appreciate like that kind of stuff so i think there's a lot of bit of value to like when i feel any confidence people listen to this podcast from around the world um if somebody's listening and they're thinking well there might be a really good idea to there are a fun idea to get into film photography and into developing film at home um i know there are ways that you can well i know there are ways that you can that you can develop film at home because my dad used to do it all the time but give us a little oversight over what you would need to develop your own film let's say in your own bathroom for example 
I mean, super basic, like, if you're not necessarily trying to actually print, you know, what a lot of people these days, I think, especially, like, in Brooklyn and whatnot, are doing, um, is developing your own film in the bathroom and then scanning it, like, at home on their computers, and then maybe, like, deciding from there what they want to print, um, because, like, the equipment for printing is obviously larger and more intensive than it is for developing, but if you're developing... All you need is, you know, a tank to hold the film and a reel to load the film onto, and then the the three chemicals and somewhere that's like safe to hang it and dry. And usually your shower is safe, clean, dry. Well, I mean, assuming you're not showering while the film is anyway. Like hang your film in your shower to dry. Um, but yeah, all the stuff that you need, I think it can really be found on Amazon still. I know that I know that film developing tanks and reels can be found on Amazon. Um, B&H Photo Video is obviously, you know, a standard for New York photography stuff. And I'm pretty sure they still have everything. They have cut down, everybody's sort of cutting down the number of different types of film that they are selling because um, Kodak and Fuji are kind of reducing the amount of film that they're producing. But then there are a lot of other little sort of independent smaller film brands that have been popping up over the last like I don't know five or ten years um so if you just like start googling really like where to buy film um people can find stuff anywhere and it is possible to develop color film in black and white chemicals you just won't get a color negative you'll just get a black and white negative um so whatever film you have yeah um you need a tank, you need a reel, you need a dark room or a light changing bag. They make special bags that sort of look like t-shirts, but the bottom edge of the t-shirt is zipped up and then you stick your hands in. Um, yeah, some sort of light tight environment to transfer the film from the original little canister into the developing tank. But yeah, and then that that gets your film you know you, you do the developer you do the stuff you do the fixer you wash it for like 10 or 15 minutes in regular running water and uh hang it up and it should be pretty good to go like mostly um you might get some water spots if you don't use photo flow but yeah and then i mean when it comes to printing you can make an enlarger and so that's a giant projector thing that you'd have to find somewhere to put um but other than that it's all the same chemicals and just like trays and stuff and, and, and it is much it's much easier to develop and it's much easier to develop black and white film compared to color film generally speaking well i mean it's an interesting question having done both i would say kind of like yes and no because the thing about color is um instead of being three chemicals it's only two and um the development times for color film are, it's all like three, three and a half minutes. It's not 10 minutes. Or with, with black and white films, the it's it's usually around 10 minutes, but it can range from like, you know, six to 18, say. Um, with color film, the development time is all going to basically be three, three and a half minutes. And you can get these press kit things. Um I think you can get them on Amazon. I'm pretty sure you can still get them at B&H. And they're just, they're just ready to go bags of powder that you mix with warm water and 
if it's ready to go. So you just you just mix up those chemicals and then they have a little like pamphlet that has the instructions on how to do the developing and you need to keep the chemicals like basically at like roughly 98 degrees Fahrenheit. So like roughly 30 degrees, 33 degrees Celsius. But with the press kits, they're designed in such a way they're designed for like press photographers who are doing their own stuff like out in the field back in the day. So there's more flexibility with the temperature. Like people get really anal about developing color film because they feel like it always it has to be like super consistently maintained at this one temperature within you know a tenth of a degree of precision for the entire time that it's developing and that's just not true like that's just not true. like if you if you use this press kit um chemical set then you start out at like 98 degrees but your development time is only like fucking three minutes so it's not going to cool down significantly in that amount of time and you just have to save your chemicals you can't pour them on the drain you have to find a lab that will take them once they're used up but each of those little kits is usually good for like 15 or 20 rolls so and it's the same you know tank and and reel and all that sort of stuff the only thing that's different is the chemicals i don't know i don't think people should be as intimidated by color as they seem to be it's not it's not really actually that hard it's just gross <laughs> the chemicals are grosser right <laughs> awesome i might actually yeah something it's actually a thought i've been playing with really for the last i don't know year or so you know um and yeah that might be developing yeah, your own I, might, I might be i might be delving into the world of of developing film at home mm, this could be interesting could, I, I can i can yeah. feel a challenge coming on that <laughs> go find a press kit like i'm sure you can order one online yeah, yeah actually, I did research a little while ago. I did research like development tanks and stuff like that. You know, um, and I don't, I don't get hold of all the stuff around here. Um, I'm also lucky that um, I'm, I'm just on the outskirts of of London, and there's uh, there's a little town a few miles away from here uh, where there's still an actual camera store. Believe it or not, you know. Oh wow! Um, I know, crazy. Um, but those guys, um, I know that you know they have a lot of um, film experience and i know um i think some of them actually shoot on films so it's, it's a little you know a little oh, community sure. there which would be good um so yeah it's definitely definitely something yeah. it's a thought i've been i've been playing with for a little while um i so a couple of years ago actually a couple of years ago let me think quite a few years ago um my my mom sent me my grandmother's first camera from 1938 uh, which was an Akfa Isolette. Oh wow! Original, like first series Isolette, and it was oh, uh, wow. so it's like a you know like a barrel camera. Um, but it still works. It's, it's in perfect condition. It's mechanically absolutely sound. Um, I could still get the film for it, you know. And I'm thinking, this could be a good awesome. challenge. Why not? Yeah. So I'll just you know, yeah, just try it out. See what see what I can get with this, you know. Um, yeah. Now I was gonna. I want to ask you. Um, how we were talking a little bit about sort of changes in the photography industry over the last few years, especially when it comes to film. How do you see that evolve um, over the next decade or so? Um, particularly with that sort of like resurgence in analog photography. I feel like we've seen Fuji and Kodak. You know, they they were the sort of like 
owners of the industry or whatever, the, the, the big guys forever, right? And it feels like over the last like five or so years, 10 years, probably 10 years, they have definitely, I, I don't think it just feels this way. I think it's true that they have, you know, sort of stopped prioritizing their still film like industry capacity kodak is still making a lot of film for hollywood um because obviously like those are such huge orders that it's like worth it for them but like it doesn't seem like they really value you know still photographers as much as they used to so they're not doing so much like small batch stuff and so what we're seeing is other people sort of stepping in to fill those gaps and popping up with new film brands um and just like kind of all of these just sort of like random independent purveyors who are now offering not necessarily like new films but you know um like very similar films packaged under a new name or whatever um and so i feel like that is kind of sort of emblematic of what we're going to see like throughout the whole industry like for so long kodak was everything right like up until like the 90s it was a kodak moment and that was it right and now it's like well you've got your instax you've got your your new polaroid you've got your old polaroid you've got but then you also have all of these little like you know different brands i mean even like cinestill and mammography but also like film for Anya's in italy um i have a friend who's working on watching a brand called green so there's a lot of like littler people that are sort of popping up to fill these gaps and i mean i also know like since i started the dark room i've seen i started the dark room because i couldn't find one right and i feel like a lot of community dark rooms have popped up around the country over the last decade so i think we're gonna see more of this sort of like independent grassroots like people coming together to get what they need on their own with a out depending so much on the large corporations where like the 20th century was dominated by kodak now maybe the 21st century will be a little, a little bit more about i don't know independent innovation that's a weird phrase but it's a bit like it's, that sort of sounds a little bit like um the music industry in the, in the mid 90s you know when all of a sudden it was independent labels that that sort of dethroned the you know the big uh big commercial labels at the time um, do you see any as of emerging trends in analog photography that are happening at the moment? There is there is something I was saying to my friends the other day. <laughs> um, when I was in school, I used to shoot a lot with like a harsh flash and and strong shadows and high contrast, and all my teachers were like, Lucia this just looks like you don't know how to use a flash. Like, stop. You don't know what you're doing. Like, you're never going to get a job, whatever, whatever, whatever. And now I'm seeing that kind of photography all over the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine. And it's all people that, like, I either know personally or am, like, one degree removed from. And so it's, like, I guess the trend would be making it look like you don't know what you're doing, even though you do know what you're doing. Slash, maybe these people don't actually know what they're doing, and I'm not really sure. I'm not supposed to be saying that out loud. <laughs> but 
but yeah, no, um, I feel like I've seen a lot of a lot of like documentary work. I mean, if you think about like Daniel Arnold, um, that kind of low angle, harsh light, like that isn't about beautifying people. Like it's about kind of I think about Daniel Arnold shooting the Met Gala and and I feel like his photos are like more raw right they're not about glamorizing i mean they are obviously because it's impossible not to glamorize an event like that but like i don't know the like kind of low angle harsh light situation is something that i have definitely seen showing up more in the last like three to five years than i did 15 years ago when i was trying to do that (laughs) but i was a child i didn't know what i was doing what advice would you give emerging photographers, um, you know, based on your own experiences and, and the lessons that you've learned um, in analog photography? What advice would you give like an emerging photographer who, who wants to give it a go and wants to try and do something different um, and get into analog photography? What would be like your number one bit of advice? For someone that has never shot film before, like that's that's who we're talking to. Yeah, I would say like start with black and white and make sure that you you know understand the you know relationship between aperture and shutter speed and film speed and the basics of how to use your flash like like really like there's a lot to be said for just like that very base foundation level of you know actual like knowledge right and and once you like kind of understand how to expose film it frees you up a lot like it's really easy to shoot without a light meter once you actually understand how to expose film and it will like just i don't know not like like knowing how to use your tools i guess right like don't just like go into it and expect it to work magically and get frustrated when it doesn't work don't don't blame the lab because your first roll of film came out blank like you probably didn't know how to load the film you know like accept and understand that like there's a lot of technical information but also it's not that much it's like six basic things and um you should you know invest the time in learning the technical information about how to use the tools as well as you know, don't just go out and get a fancy camera. Get something like a, you know, a Pentax K1000 or a Canon AE1, something that's fully manual and just like play around with it until you feel like it's an extension of yourself or something, you know, like, yeah. Because I, I don't think like, I don't think it's that hard to like learn how to expose film. You just have to like do it so yeah just do it but also like i i encounter people who like approach me with like a certain degree of like maybe arrogance i don't know because they like don't necessarily know something but they think they know something but they like don't want to admit that they don't know something or whatever and so then they're all like you know you messed up my film for x y reason and i'm like well actually Actually, you never actually like loaded it into your camera so sorry i didn't have anything to do with that um but yeah it's like it's like it's like put your put your pride and your shame aside and be like 
willing to ask questions and be open to like learning things from people who have more experience than you do. It'll definitely be a learning curve. That's for sure. Yeah. Definitely. But once, I mean, it's, it's sure it's, it's kind of like an exponential curve, but like once you get up there, like it definitely does like, you know, basically like plateau, there's always more to learn, but once you have that foundation you have that foundation and, you know, it's basically just a matter of like making like a few tweaks to various things for, you know, anything, you know, like all the developers are fundamentally the same ingredients, just like slightly different ratios or slightly different like tweaks and you can get really into the like nitty gritty details but um you don't need to it's as long as you like really actually do understand how to expose and develop your film then you're good and that's like like getting understanding the relationship between aperture shutter speed and iso i think is the most important thing for learning how to you know expose and develop film for getting a good exposure <laughs> and also the sunny 16 role i mean that's really like yeah <laughs> of course and it's always you know, learning sunny something. 16 role. yeah absolutely yeah and it's always learning something new it can only benefit your photography as a whole anyway so yeah. you know if it's if it's something you know if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking well actually you know i've always thought i've played with the thought of of uh you know, shooting film, then this might just be, you know, the little kick up the backside that, that you needed uh, to make the decision get into it. Um, Lucia, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It was so much fun talking about film photography. Um, I've learned a ton, I can tell you that. Um, and, you know, yeah, maybe maybe there'll be more more film more film talk on this podcast in the not-too-distant future, for sure. Um, okay, Hopefully. folks, that's all for today. It's been fantastic catching up with Lucia. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Check out episode 145 with Gilbert Mayak, where we discuss street photography on film. I'm sure you love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean a lot to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully-fledged video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? Uh, all black and white, incidentally. All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you're on YouTube already, well, get in touch and leave a comment, and remember to hit that like button, ring the bell, and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching, and I'll see you next Thursday. Bye.